Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a Sirius XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews? are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. I'm still not sure if my friend Gerald Posner has been dealt a good or bad hand relative to the release of his brand new book, Pharma. Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. And I ask that question because he has been at work on this book for literally years Uh, You'll know that's the case by the page count, which is nearly 800 pages. You should know as well that about 200 of them are uh, footnotes because he's so methodical in the way in which he presents the information. But imagine being at work on a book pertaining to the history of the pharmaceutical industry. And then because of events you obviously cannot control, it is published in the context of a pandemic. The book is called Pharma. The author is Gerald Posner. How do you regard it, Gerald? Do you think you got a, a good or a bad draw in that regard? You, you know, uh, Michael, I'm not sure either because um, it's a lot of attention 
obviously because I'm talking about the drug industry, and I've got a chapter in there called The Coming Pandemic, in which an infectious disease doctor says, and I wrote this before coronavirus was identified, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. So people think, you know, there are answers in there, but I will tell you that the book becomes only important now in that there's a lot of misinformation. So in some ways, having been involved in this, talking to these people and continuing to talk to them, I do think that we're at a critical juncture in which we can actually, you know, really get good information out. And to the extent that that can happen, it sort of trumps the book, if that makes sense. So the more attention it gets, at least it gets me out there and I can sort of calm nerves and at the same time take it seriously, but don't panic. Do you have a medical background? I don't. As a matter of fact, I was a political science major at Berkeley. So you would think, that my, my goodness, he doesn't know uh, anything about uh, no, the basic chemicals. No, no, to, 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 the, to the contrary, to read the book is to know that you have a mastery of this material. But as I was reading the way in which you were able to synthesize the history of so many uh, pharmaceutical products, much less the, the history of the, the companies, I, I wondered how you were able to pull that off. Uh, well, I guess that that's what uh, Tricia calls being uh, my wife, locked in the book cave for a few years. We we are best when we literally have the second bedroom in our uh, apartment, which is converted into a home office, stacked from floor to ceiling. I'll have to send you a picture once with boxes of documents, and one of our walls has been converted into a whiteboard. Uh, uh, and I delve into it. The first year was essentially spent on this, learning the the business, meaning finding out and getting to the stage where I could conduct an intelligent intelligent interview with somebody, and so that meant just you know learning the pharma and medical business and and what it took. And I think you do see some of that in there. I think there was a uh, Christian Science Monitor uh, pick today for the top ten books in March. It was listed and it said you know uh, uh, very technical and extremely gripping. That's that's a rare combination. <laughs> So, Gerald, what made you decide years ago, literally years ago, that you wanted to write what is? It reads like a novel, but it's a history of pharma. Because I underestimated how big the task was. And you say, how could you underestimate the task of writing about the drug business? But I did in the sense that I thought I could do an overview, a 30,000, from the 30,000 foot level, this story of the history of the American drug business from the time that heroin and cocaine were legal and they were selling it through the big discoveries of penicillin, the wartime projects, then the golden age of pharma in the 50s and 60s when they were viewed as brilliant scientists, polio vaccines and everything else, and then into the 70s and 80s with all the questions about you know, anti-anxiety pills and addiction, then into the opioid crisis. I thought, oh, good tale. Turns out to be a little bit more complicated than that because it involves drug pricing, it involves characters that at times are brilliant and great, and some of them greedy and not so great, and um, issues that become a little bit more complex. And that's why I realized the business gets away with what it does so much because it is complicated and a lot of people don't understand it, including the people in Washington who make policies. I think some people who are driving in their cars across the country right now and are uninitiated in this subject matter are saying, wait a minute, did he just say there was a time in the not too distant past in this country when heroin and cocaine were both legal? What's that story? Yeah, you know, uh, I, I take it for granted now, having been in the history, and I'm surprised when when people don't know it, but Bayer, uh, the German drug company, the very same research team 
in Bayer that discovered aspirin, one of the great wonder drugs of the time and still used today, was the same research team that two years later um, discovered heroin. And they thought of it as a cure for then morphine addiction. They thought it would help babies with whooping cough, and it was given for everything from anxiety to people with tension headaches. It was legal here in the U.S., uh, approved for sale in 1900 and sold for nearly 15 years until the Harris Act made it illegal. All types of products. Cocaine was legal. It was part of the of drugs that were sold and bottled as all types of pharmacies. So was uh, marijuana. And they were made illegal afterwards. We know, you know, we're going toward drug legalization. I say sometimes to people, let's slow the process up. Not that I'm against it, but I do say look at the early part of what happened to the country from the late 1800s to World War I when it was legal here and being sold, there were a lot of addiction, a lot of problems, a lot of crime. So it's not a panacea. You describe in the book, I think it was early on in the book, how there was there was actually litigation of the United States government against Coca-Cola for being dangerous and addictive. Uh, it, it's so fantastic because the, the great thing about Coca-Cola is, it, yes, it did have a trace of it's true. The old line you hear originally had some trace of cocaine or what would be the equivalent of chemical cocaine in it. It had been removed by the time the U.S. took action against it. You'll love this, Michael, and I think your listeners will. They, they took action against Coca-Cola because they said it misbranded itself since it was called coca cola and had no cocaine in it was misbranding and it had caffeine in it which they viewed as a dangerous drug meanwhile you could go out and buy heroin and cocaine products but they were worried about caffeine you know sometimes government regulators have been picking on the wrong or taking the wrong focus there's no better example than that gerald posner is my guest the book is called pharma this is the book club with michael smirconish podcast from sirius xm Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive 
then takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. Gerald Posner is my guest. The book is called Pharma. It's available now everywhere. Gerald, the names of the big pharma companies, I think, are household names. Merck, Johnson, SmithKline, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I never stopped to think about, and it were, they were men, but the men behind those names who were the founders of those companies. You get into all those backstories. That's what I meant when I said it sometimes reads like a novel. Yeah, I, you know, I do think that we we see these companies and we forget there was actually, um, you know, a, a fellow Wilhelm uh, was not only the head of the company, but sort of thought that Merck and other drug companies had the equivalent of what they call a uh, a public trust, uh, that it was a, a quasi-public trust, and they had to put patients first and not profits. Uh, that's not always the case. And I do go into some of the people that built these companies from scratch, and it is interesting because you see them literally come out of nowhere. I mean, they started as small operations, many of them with addictive products, because that's just the nature of the business. Around the time of the Civil War, when morphine was uh, needed as a, as a painkiller and was being rushed into all types of uh, battlefield conditions, that's where we really see the first setup of pharma here with Squibb, Eli Lilly, um, uh, Burroughs and Welcome, all of those men setting up those uh, items uh, sort of in the 1860s and that, and you see how they process from there. I mean, really what they do, Michael, after they lose the what I call the addictive products, they wait. There's nothing going on for them until World War II, and then all of a sudden the discovery of penicillin. U.S. government puts a secret project to make penicillin, knowing it could save hundreds of thousands of lives in the battlefield. It's the number two priority project inside the government after the atomic bomb, and they bring in 10 pharmaceutical companies. The government spends hundreds of millions of dollars to build the fermentation plants for them and give them the technology. And then these companies produce the penicillin in record amounts. They do save lives all over. When they emerge from World War II, they are the names, as you said, that we know as household names. They dominate the business. They get 80% of the worldwide profits because they've gotten this great push on what becomes the, the big panacea drug of the 50s, and that's antibiotics. They got it with the push from the government and government funding. So the names include the uh, the famous and the now infamous, and I'm thinking, and there's a lot of discussion in the book about the Sackler family 
and Purdue. You tell the whole story. I I didn't realize that the Sacklers were so rooted in left-wing politics. Maybe you want to say a word about that. But the subject matter that I'm discussing now is OxyContin. And it's amazing the, the history that you lay out. And what I was most interested to read about was the chapter that I think was titled The Sales Department on Steroids. Yeah, you know, uh, Michael, it's interesting. I think that most people, your listeners who know there's an opioid epidemic and crisis, and they've heard the names of the Sackler family uh, listed as the OxyContin clan worth $14 billion by Forbes. Uh, They've become one of the richest families in America. They think of them as only being with Purdue Pharma and Oxy. And what they don't realize, and I didn't know until I started the book, is I sort of lay out for the first time what made the Sacklers the Sacklers? They go back to the 1940s. They were involved in shearing a German drug company. The FBI was investigating for possibly being a conduit for Nazi funds to South America. Uh, they were investigated by the Senate in the early 60s and called the Sackler Empire. Uh, they literally, some of them were card-carrying members of the Communist Party, used their firms as safe haven for blacklisted journalists uh, during the 1950s. And they were advertising geniuses who revolutionized the business by creating the salesmen who visited doctors, the free samples. They made Valium the first $100 million drug and the first billion-dollar drug. So by the time you get to the sales force on steroids, what the Purdue Pharma sales force was doing to sell OxyContin, it's not a surprise because it's the Sackler DNA. What I mean by that is they put a capital A on the word aggressive marketing. They send that sales team out to those doctors to push for higher doses, for longer treatments, starting patients at earlier times because it all means bigger profits. They paid bonuses to their sales force that doubled their annual salaries at times. They would push the limits of what the FDA said the drug was approved for. No longer was it just terminal end-of-life cancer or the worst types of pain, but they were pushing it for everything from even arthritis, which it had shown to be failed foreign tests, to possibilities of back pain. So no, And when they saw that there were pill mills, which are pharmacies in which doctors are prescribing an inordinate amount of OxyContin, 3% of doctors prescribing 55% of all the pills in America. They never reported any of that to the FDA, nor did any of the distributors like McKesson, the big multi-billion dollar distributors. So there's a lot of blame to go around in here. The Sacklers are the poster, uh, you know, uh, boys for it in terms of OxyContin, but there's plenty of blame with overprescribing doctors and other companies as well. So here's how it began. I'm reading from the book. Initially, Purdue only bought lists of doctors sorted by zip code who were heavy prescribers of existing painkillers such as Vicodin, Percocet, Lortab, and Percodin. Those records covered about 5,000 of the country's 800,000 active physicians, according to the charges set for later in a complaint by the Massachusetts Attorney General. That was enough for the sales squad to focus on what the company internally dubbed the core dispensers, the physicians it believed could be influenced to increase opioid prescription the most. What what were the milestones where all of a sudden it got out of control? I mean, the so-called sales department on steroids. Uh, well, because what happened is, so Purdue was spending, spent a million dollars to get that system to be able to find those doctors. And when they did find them, they, they had three things. Here's where it got out of control. 
they, they had a group. They said, what do we want to sell to? We want to sell to older people. So they had a geriatric strategy. They were pushing Oxy for that, even though it was not approved by the FDA and that concentrated on osteoarthritis. It was one of the most common complaints. They got VA hospitals and VA doctors to offer them in big amounts. They concentrated and targeted vets returning from Afghanistan and Iraq who suffered from chronic pain. And they even had, beyond the vets, uh, they had a catch-all category for those who had never tried opioids. This was the real problem, what they called opioid virgins, OVS. That was an enormous market. They were prepared to distribute hundreds of thousands of brochures and, and to get people who had never tried the drug to try it if they ever had a complaint about pain. And that, I think, Michael, is where they pushed the boundary right up to the legal limit and kept pushing it until, with the government failing to enforce it. You write in the book, the, and I want to tie this now to, to, to the current, what's going on in, in the pandemic around us. The prediction of a coming pandemic, unstoppable because the pharmaceutical industry has put profits over its duty to develop drugs for the public good, is no wild-eyed conspiracy theory, heavy on drama and light on evidence. Quote, it is not a question of if, warns Professor Karen Bush. It is a question of when. Are you saying, Gerald, that they've left us vulnerable? Pharma has left us vulnerable to what has now arrived? No, not to what has now arrived, because that doctor was talking about, this is so amazing to me, the doctors that I spoke to for the book, their number one concern about a pandemic was not a viral pandemic, like the one that we have here, they were concerned instead about what would be a bacterial pandemic, which is a super germ, super bugs. People may have heard that you, in the hospitals, there's a thing called MRSA. And we have antibiotic resistance developing around the world because antibiotics are used so much. They're used in, in the food supply. People take them when they shouldn't. So as a result, doctors are worried about what had caused the bubonic plague. Some type of bacterial pathogen starts spreading around. There's no natural immunity for it, and antibiotics don't work. That would, be, that would have a very high death rate. Now we're dealing with a different pandemic, which is viral. Antibiotics don't work. It's working and passing around. It, it, we think of the 1918 flu epidemic, but the conditions are very different now. So we could have a high infection rate, but we have a very low death rate, even if it's under 1%, because the infection rate could be high, uh, and most people will survive and have mild symptoms still we have to be careful. And that's what they're concerned about. So all of this, you know, uh, social isolation, uh, keeping away, canceling March Madness and all the NBA games and everything else. I know a lot of people scratch their head and say, oh, isn't it over the top? I know you just canceled your trip to Washington State. But what they're trying to do is what they call flatten the curve, which means that if they can get people to isolate, if they can keep down super spreaders unintentionally walking into a basketball game and infecting 20 people and it doubles every day, Maybe it won't peak at the same time and we won't turn into Italy. If it peaks at the same time, the health system gets overrun, hospital beds are crammed, emergency rooms you can't operate in, and we have to then decide who lives and who dies. We don't want to be there. If we can flatten the curve, we can deal with it in an orderly manner, even though it's really affecting and inconveniencing a lot of our lives. There's a very real-life question playing out now that we often debate in the abstract as to whether pharma should be allowed to profit on taxpayer-funded research. Will you apply that prism to what just went on with the COVID emergency funding bill? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the one part that does get me furious about uh, drug companies. Uh, you know, there are good things about them. I talk about it in the book, but the, we have spent nine, we, taxpayers in America, 
And I write about this in a chapter. We spent $900 billion since the 1930s from the National Institute of Health on public research that pharmaceutical companies then took and made into patents in which they made billions of dollars. The first HIV AIDS drug by Burroughs, all they did was provide the drug compound that NIH then tested and with a private consortium, all private money, all public money, no, nothing to do with the drug business. Burroughs then took it, got a patent on that first drug, AZT. Government sued them to take the patent back, lost in court, and Burroughs made billions from it. And what's happening now on COVID-19 in this $8.3 billion bill, the emergency funding? Pharma lobbyists are in there trying to make sure that the government cannot take away their intellectual property, what they do in research, even though it's a taxpayer money, unless they make a reasonable profit. And they don't want the government to have any final say about what that profit can be. I'll tell you, we're all making sacrifices. People are sitting at home. People are trying to telecommute. There are people who need work and need to support their families. There are parents who's, who are at home because their children are forced not to go to school. The country is making sacrifices. It's time for the pharmaceutical industry to make a small sacrifice and do this at near cost. They also have to get involved. Uh, this is public money that's being spent on it. And I don't know why there's not more of a cry for that in Washington. Both parties in other words, are the you're, you're arguing that the public monies in that $8.3 billion funding bill should be in and of itself enough for pharma, that there shouldn't be a residual intellectual property interest. No, and they should know. They should be able to charge a price because they're going to develop the vaccine. They're going to go through the test and they'll have the vaccine. And if that vaccine costs them $10 a vial, whatever it is, they should be able to charge 11 if they do for it. Make a small profit, but don't come back and make 20 or $30. We're talking in 1976 on the swine flu. They made tens of millions of dollars and the U.S. government carried all the liability risk and indemnification. So I'm asking them, make a profit, but don't gouge. This is a time when you can't sell a disinfectant on eBay for $50. We want you to sell it for what it's really worth. We're asking people to do that. So they should step up to the plate. Hey, Gerald, one last thought uh, about the book. There are portions of the book that I would normally have sped read. I don't know (laughs) that uh, that I would have. I don't know that I would have been interested in Spanish flu. Right. If we weren't living through what we're living through, you know, it infected a half a billion people, about a third of the world's population. Here's the question that I want to ask for people who have not yet read Pharma. Where in your book lies the takeaway that most applies from our history to what we're going through now with coronavirus? It's You just said, Michael, the Spanish flu because of the following. If you read that, you'll understand, as you know, that that's the equivalent of a new influenza type virus that nobody had immunity to that's the danger it spread around the world infected literally a third of the world killed up to 100 million people but what we are doing now is very different we've learned a lesson and that's why we are doing all of this isolation and cancellation of events back then they didn't do any of that as a matter of fact they didn't understand that they had halls crowded with people people living in tenements out on the street uh none of the correction measures that we've taken now that's one of the reasons it spread so wildly. I believe we can limit this and we can be more like the countries that are having infection rates, but they're controlled. Italy's example of what happens if you don't take it seriously in the beginning. Am I right that, that Spain kind of got screwed by association? They were penalized because they were publishing reports about it and nobody else was? 
You know, as a journalist, see, there you are. You pick up on this wonderful thing that all of us in journalism love, which is the all of the countries were so afraid of the Spanish flu that they literally had a lockdown on the press. They said no reporting about it because we don't want to scare people. You don't want to do what's happening now on coronavirus. And the only country that allowed the press to report about it was in Spain. And as a result, once it started to really take hold and move around the world, People called it the Spanish flu because they had been the first ones to have, talk about it. It had nothing to do with Spain. It didn't come from Spain. As a matter of fact, it did come from the Far East again. But uh, that's a question for another day. Let me just say, don't be intimidated. When you, when you see the size of this book, don't be intimidated by it. Are you, Gerald, you concerned uh, about that issue? No, you know, I, I'll tell you, the, uh, the thing was, uh, look, I brought it to my publisher, Simon Schuster, Avid Reader Press. They're in the business of selling books. And if they, they said, you know, we'd love a book 400 pages long. And then when they read this, they said, OK, it's a story that you've told that has to be told. The reporting is important. And as you said earlier, 300 pages of the source notes. So if somebody wants to pick it up and just not look at the detailed source notes for the academic types at the back and the journalists, it's fine. I think it's a book that reads very well. The New York Me Times too. review the other day that will be out Sunday will tell you that as well. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's excellent. And I, I learned so, so much. It made me feel so deficient in terms of what I'd never even thought of before. But I congratulate you for it. And I'm, I'm, I think the t- me, I think the timing is perfect. I, I think the timing is ideal, unfortunately, for society. But it's 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 ideal for you as a uh, as an author. Well, uh, thank you very much, Michael, always uh, for your support. I'm sorry that we're talking at a time where it's a real pandemic, but um, I uh, hope that at some point we're able to talk afterwards and we can uh, talk about the after effects of pulling uh, the society back and putting everything back uh, together uh, when this uh, sort of viral surge passes. We will do it. Congratulations and thank you, Gerald. Thank you, Michael. Gerald Posner. The book is called Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace.